You are tuning into Latino Politics and News with Tony Diaz on 90.1 FM, KPFT, Houston, Texas. The era of Hispandering is over. You are tuning into Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We appreciate you visiting us. For that reason, we've put together another great show. This really is our mission. And I think that right now, as the whole idea of Latino vote is clickbait, because that's what it is, we want to make you understand that the Latino vote is the tip of the pyramid. Community cultural capital is the base. And we have been unearthing it and cultivating it for decades. Today, that's summed up in two great interviews that will give you a perspective of what it means to campaign, what it means to run for office, and what this election cycle meant for the Latino vote. We'll be talking to Judge Julia Maldonado. She is one of the Super 7 judges who won the judge seats. That means that with the seven Latinas who won these seats... We now have an 18% representation of Latinas in those particular benches. Obviously, we can do better, but we have to recognize this milestone. And we're going to talk to Julia Maldonado about what it was like to run before this, because she's an incumbent. So she won her re-election, and she'll be sworn in again. But at one point, she was one of the only Latinas even running. So we want to get a perspective on that and also celebrate her because it's fantastic to see our community lead. We're also touching basis with Jacob Monte, who is a Republican who campaigned against Donald Trump. And we're going to have a really good conversation about what the Latino vote means from both sides of the aisle. More importantly, I got to find out if he really voted for Biden. Okay, what is the fallout? What's the future look like? Guess what? It's Latinos talking about the Latino vote. How radical is that? We demand to be humanized. And guess what? Our thoughts are thrilling. We're glad that you think so, too. We're glad we got your support. And we got a great crew to thank. I want to thank Rodrigo Bravo, who mixes our show remotely. And he really puts a lot of, of his intelligence and genius into conveying all these guests, their thoughts, and what we're about. We also want to thank Roxana Guzman, who helps put all that work into graphics to let other people know what's going on and keep them tuned in to tuning in. And also want to thank Leti Lopez, who makes sure that we have some great sounds because we want to bring you the soundtrack to a revolution. This is Tony Diaz. Grateful you're here. Grateful we get to entertain your thoughts for a little bit. Stay tuned. into Latino politics and news. This is Tony Diaz. We are checking in with Jacob Monte to get the perspective from a Republican who actively campaigned against Donald Trump. See what that looked like from the inside. See what his thoughts are on the result. And this has always been about what is a perspective on the Latino vote. So first of all, Jacob, welcome back to our show. Happy to be here, Tony, and uh, I'm very happy that the good guys won, that uh, Trump was defeated. Unfortunately, Trumpism is still alive and, and kicking and, and maybe even stronger now than, than before, but we did send him uh, a very strong message that you know he's out. Wow. So you're diving right into the interview. I appreciate that. You're making, you're making the work a lot easier because you have no qualms in expressing your dissatisfaction with the Trump campaign then. No, and, and ultimately, you know, I have a long history of being against the campaign. I was on his Hispanic Advisory Committee in 2016 for about a month. 
and I campaigned for him, and I believed what he told me. He said he wanted to achieve immigration reform that would bring people out, out of the shadows and give the give them work uh, uh, permission and uh, eventually a path to citizenship. And I believed it. And then he, he backtracked. He went to Phoenix and gave an immigration speech that called for uh, ending birthright citizenship, deporting dreamers. And I quit, I quit on August uh, 31st of 2016. But, um, and you know, but so for four years I've been battling Trump uh, and, and Trumpism and I feel that the Latino community can, can breathe a sigh of relief that we did win. We, we, we did kick him out. But unfortunately, his message that immigrants are bad, that Mexicans are bad, that, uh, you know, that, that only he uh, can solve the, the problem, all, all the nonsense that we've been seeing for the last four years has been adopted by all of his uh, underlings in the Senate and many of the governors, and it, it, it's terrible. So we still have a lot of work to do. And there's a lot of layers to it. So you touched on his approach to the immigrant community. We can also talk about his direct and subtle and long-lasting damage to Mexican-American citizens, which has not been focused on a lot. And then we can talk about what's next for the Latino vote, but I do want to go back to his approach to immigration because he's played with the Dreamers and DACA throughout his tenure as president because you mentioned at one point he promised a pathway for Dreamers, exactly like you said, that crumbled. And then at some point later on, a few years later, he said, we're going to take care of the Dreamers. In fact, if I remember correctly, near the end of his campaign, he kept saying any day we're going to have a better uh, approach to the dreamers. Um, he, he never quite stopped playing around with us. Is that fair to say you think? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he did offer us, you know, uh, he flirted with helping the dreamers, but his actions were his attorney general canceled DACA. His attorney general canceled advanced parole for DACA. I mean, this is a president who attacked legal immigration as well, uh, you know, uh, attacking H-1B visas, attacking uh, what he called chi- chain migration, uh, even though his own benef- his own family benefited from it. I forgot so, about that one. That was a few years back. I forgot all about that one. So he is um, his, his his actions were were very anti-immigrant. Uh, yes, he did throw out positive rhetoric when he wanted to portray himself as a little bit more middle of the road. And, and let's be honest, the only reason he, he flirted with helping the Dreamers is because Dreamers are popular even with Republicans. Mm. 70% of Republicans think that kids who grew up here uh, deserve to stay here. So, you know, it's not that he, he cared a lick about the Dreamers, but he knew that he had to throw out some positive rhetoric because even his own base had a hard time believing that it was smart to kick people who had grown up here their whole lives, who were brought to this country under the age of, of 16 and, and, and should be kicked out. So, you know, it's all about the election, you know, how he can spin things, how he can, he can try to position himself. He doesn't care about, about uh, immigrants. Uh, I, I think he, he actually uh, is is a bigot toward immigrants, and but you mentioned the other thing because it's it's not just immigrants. Let's talk a little bit about how he attacked Mexican Americans. You know, we know what he did to Judge Curiel. Oh man, basically but, uh, maligned him. But but dwell on that. Explain, folks, about that, please. Well, Judge Curiel is the judge who was presiding over the Trump University case, and he felt he said that a Mexican judge could not be fair to him. But wait a minute. Judge Curiel was born in Indiana to Mexican parents. (laughs) And, you know, that didn't matter. He viewed him as a Mexican judge, and a Mexican judge could not be fair to him. His case ultimately settled. He paid over $20 million to to resolve the the claims that uh, people who had paid for the Trump University 
uh, you know, felt they were scammed. And, and but, you know, that's the way, you know, that, that was his attack on on Mexican Americans, uh, you know, in, in, in 2016. And and it only got worse. Which he never uh, let's let's dwell on that for one second, though, because he never apologized for that. And as you pointed out, Judge Curiel was born in Indiana. He was Mexican American. Additionally, there were far right wingers that tried to malign him for having associated with the organization. Any organization that had the word "raza" in it, they tried to malign him as if he were uh, involved with radicals, which was not the case. These are affinity groups. The other sinister part of all that, we we don't have time to dig in as profoundly as we can. I'm just personally offended that he made money off of scamming students to Trump University and all these for-profit schools majority exploit African-American students and Latino students because, uh, last thing I want to say about it because we can go on for too long, there's a book called Lower Education written by a woman who used to be in the field got her PhD and tried to make amends. She pointed out that those institutions that are for profit, they price their credit hours in a way to maximize debt for students. That that's that's all in there. Let let's not touch on that because you got more to add to this. So please please continue on other ways. No, I agree. Um I do need to mention El Paso's my hometown and when you when you assess how bad he is to Mexican Americans, you have to to examine the El Paso massacre it happened a little more than a year ago, and 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 the the perpetrator of that crime was motivated by the hate that Donald Trump spews, by the hate that Breitbart spews, and and Eight Chan and you know the V Dare Foundation, vdare.com, All these are 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 entities or individuals that hate Mexicans, and that individual who who shot up the, the Walmart and killed Mexicans, he wasn't looking for their IDs when he shot them. He, he saw brown faces. And all Mexican-Americans, all Latinos, uh, should be very frightened by that because uh, he, it, Donald Trump, I hold Donald Trump responsible for that massacre because he has encouraged that rhetoric and... To have to, to, for the president of the United States to use his bully pulpit to encourage uh, hatred toward Mexicans is, is very dangerous, and we saw what happened. And unfortunately, there's other people that listen to the president, and um, that's going to be part of his legacy. Unfortunately, I would also like to add a component so that people who are not well versed in these issues don't assume that. We are ourselves furthering a conspiracy theory. I want to go back to the banning of Mexican-American studies in Arizona when that racist law was overturned at the Arizona Supreme Court. It stated that that law and all the discriminatory rhetoric was created with not just discriminatory intent, but in order for certain politicians to gain power. And that's what you're touching on there in that there was a certain type of hateful rhetoric targeted towards Mexicans, and that also means Mexican-Americans who are citizens, that was exploited to gain traction with election with votes. Tony, I, you brought up Arizona. I just want to thank you for beginning the mobilization of the Latinos in Arizona when you stood up to that racist law, because you, you, we saw the fruits of, of your efforts uh, in November when Latinos were 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 hugely responsible for the victory of Joe Biden in in Arizona. So thank you for your work on that because you know the, the, the they the Latinos in Arizona fought back and uh, and thankfully they did because Arizona is now uh, a blue state. I appreciate you mentioned that. Shout out to all the Libre Traficantes, all the Nuestra Palabra crew, all the activists, and all the gente and community cultural capital in Arizona that taught all of us how to stand up. And you make a great point there, uh, Jacob. You know, it was just eight years ago that Arizona was the ground zero for anti, let's just call it anti-Mexican, Mexican-American rhetoric against immigration and the banning of Mexican-American studies. And you make a great case that because of community cultural capital, it now turned blue. So there is light at the end of the tunnel. 
Um, you, you were actually... All right, but I don't want you to think that I have nothing bad to say about the Democrats. So can I, <laughs> let me get my, get my, my top ten. <laughs> so the, the juice is over. You're throwing down the gauntlet. But before we go then, I got to ask you this question before we transition. <laughs> before we transition, um, did you actually vote for Joe Biden for president? Yes, Tony, I did. Wow. This is the first time I ever did it. Uh, not only did I do it, but my wife and my kids, and I made everybody go. Um, you know, uh, I held a, bu- a fundraiser for Joe Biden in February. I raised, uh, you know, not a lot of money. It was about $20,000. But $20,000 in February of 2020 meant a lot. And, you know, I was all in for Biden. You know, I didn't vote for Hillary in 2016. I voted for Gary Johnson. I couldn't bring myself to, to go all the way, but... After four years of, of dealing with Trump, I said, no way, I'm going all in. And I felt that Biden was the, the person that, that Democrats and Republicans could unite with. And ultimately, you know, the win maybe wasn't pretty. I, I was disappointed it was not a bigger win. But, you know, some some uh, Republicans did not vote for him, a good number. Uh, we had huge turnout with the Democrats, and, and it was enough. So, you know, I think... Uh, you know, a bigger win would have been nice, but, we'll, I mean, we'll take what we got. Um, I do find myself, though, Tony, uh, as I said earlier, a sort of a man without a party because mm. Trump is gone, but Trumpism is still alive, and he has he has taken over the, the Republican Party. You know, I grew up as a, as a Bush Republican that believed in free trade, uh, immigration, the benefits of immigration, uh, the rule of law. All of those things mean nothing to today's Republican Party. And I've taken a lot of heat from my friends, you know, my Republican friends. They, they call me a traitor. They, they, they say, um, you know, I should have supported the president. And, and I don't care. I'm, uh, I'm still conservative. But unfortunately, there's no room for me in the party. So ultimately, I think the Democratic Party is the big tent party now. Uh, and, you know, that's. You know, that's probably where, I mean, that, that, that's where I see myself now. And I do got now, now let me at least get my jobs in on the Democrats. All right. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Tony, we, the Democrats, and I, I'm kind of, I, that's who I identi- identify with now, is we have to figure out a way to talk to Latinos about hunting and gun rights and gun responsibilities. Because so many Latinos in South Texas were fooled by Trump, who, and, and I talked to some of them, they thought, if, if if Biden won, there was going to be no more hunting in South Texas. Imagínate, they had, you know, this is hunting season. So, so many rural Texans love hunting. And and uh, the Republicans were spewing out the lies, the conspiracy theories. Oh, yeah, Beto's going to, as, as soon as Biden wins, everyone's going to have to turn in their, their deer rifles to Beto. <laughs> oh, <Lord>. <laughs> and, and I heard people telling me that, and I was like, no, that's not true. And, you know, they, but, I, but I heard it on the Internet. Well, you know, it, it's a lie. And not everything, you know, uh, on the Internet is true. I think I think Democrats have to figure out a way to, I'm not saying sell out. I, I'm not saying abandon their commitment to gun control. But, you know, we have to have a way to make hunters feel comfortable about the Democratic Party. I think we also have to figure out a way to talk about oil and gas uh, jobs that are very important to Texas. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and taxes. And again, I think I see a lot of future with the democratic party because, uh, you know, it is a big tent. I mean, you can have someone like, like, uh, me that likes to hunt that has a ranch that, you know, believes that, you know, you do need a gun, you know, to control the hog, the wild hog population, man, these, these hogs are running over my ranch, Tony. Yeah. There's like <laughs> 300 of them. Uh, no, but, in this serious you know, business, I, yeah. <laughs> I could be comfortable with 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 an activist with with Black Lives Matter. You know, uh, you know, it, it's at least with the Democratic Party. You know, it's a big enough tent to where I think that there's room for for people that uh, that can have a little bit of, of variations on on some topics, but generally agree on on the big issues. And I do think the 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 Democratic Party should should understand that. I was very active with the Lincoln Project, 
Tony, it was so funny. Uh, I've never before done a Republican-sponsored uh, event with LULAC, and it was so cool. We did a a birthday party for Little Joe at Escapade. And that was, was great, by, by the way. Congrats, yeah. The Lincoln Project and by LULAC, uh, LULAC National. And I worked with um, um, you know the leaders of LULAC, uh, and uh, it was uh, it was so neat to you know celebrate Little Joe's party to motivate the the people. We donated a lot of food uh, for people affected by the pandemic, and it was a, a very powerful event. Uh, and you know I, I see a lot of potential uh, to do more collaboration with them, uh, but. Um, you know, it, it's uh, you know, it, it. I think we. I think the Democratic Party also needs to work w- with other, you know, Republicans who feel like me, who who feel like they don't have a party. You know, send out the welcome mat. I'm not saying, you know, abandon the Democratic values, but let them know that you know this is the big tent. I think there's a huge opportunity there. I know some Republicans are gloating with the fact that they want Zapata County. Great, you know, that's like. 30,000 people, guys, you know, uh, that, that they were able to fool a few Latin, you know, the Latinos that live there to vote for Trump. I mean, that's not a big deal. I think, um, I think, you know, uh, I think that the, well, obviously the majority of Latinos in Texas, over 60% of them voted for Biden, and that's important. But of course, the Democrats, uh, I mean, the Republicans are trying to claim a huge victory because, you know, they did well in, in the rural uh, counties of South Texas. I think, you know, had our messaging be, been better about oil and gas, about fracking, and about hunting, we would have we would have clobbered uh, Trump on, in, in those South Texas counties. And you're bringing up some very good insights at the ground level because I think, and of course I'm optimistic, um, I think the Latino vote has graduated from this national generalization where people are now looking at specifics and trying to articulate it. I mean, one thing I always say is that no <laughs> no uh, campaign manager or campaign um, publicity team would ever sit down and tell a white candidate, listen, you need to capture the white vote. No, even pollsters, they say things like, okay, white college-educated women in the suburbs lean towards Biden. There's very specific ways to articulate the Anglo vote that may be finally happening to us, which is what you're touching on. I think both parties left us to our own devices because if I'm yeah. not mistaken, Trump, I think Trump came to the ATM machine a couple times in Texas, but nothing big. Um, it seems like both parties just said, hey, you guys handle it yourselves. Uh, I don't know. Did you see that also from as far as the national Republican approach to Texas? Oh, yeah. I, I think that's a good point, too, because you know, Biden really didn't contest Texas. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Biden, you know, he never came. He sent Kamala. So to say that he that Biden lost Texas to Trump is sort of misleading because, you know, we didn't see any, I mean, we didn't see any local ads here. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the Republicans are trying to spin that as, oh, yeah, we won Texas. Well, it, you know, they did. But uh, I think the writing's on the wall. If we work hard, we can make Texas like Arizona and, you know, it's uh, it's hard for me, Tony, because I uh, <laughs> I believed in the Republican Party. Uh, I sweated for them. I donated to them. Mm. But I've come to the realization that Trumpism is still there, and and there's no future for Latinos in the Republican Party. And uh, uh, and you know, uh, I don't see Trumpism ending anytime soon. I think it's it's actually stronger now. Because you're having people that say, "Well, you see, we did well with Hispanics in South Texas, so you know, apparently we can win Hispanics." Well, I think that's the wrong lesson to learn, but they're doubling down. And you mentioned something earlier about the Bush legacy. What fascinates me too about Republican strategists is that they're happy that they're performing at a certain level for. Latinos, but this is still nothing compared to what the Bush campaign had developed for decades. I mean, Bush and McCain, between the two of them, it was raining Latinos as far as Republicans went, and then Trump came around. 
continued to routinely get 50% of the Latino vote in, in Arizona. And, and, and Bush got up to 45% of the Latino vote uh, in the 20, uh, 2004 election. So, no, but when you talked about Republican strategists, I, I've been reading a lot with the pandemic, and I read a great book. It's called It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. And it was written by a friend named Stuart Stevens, and this is a guy I admired in the Republican Party. You know, he basically you know, says it was all a lie. I mean, this party was built on the, on the white, on the Southern strategy that was pitched to, to, um, to Richard Nixon. And, you know, uh, you had some people stand up to that, you know, like the Bushes, but now with Trump, you know, it's, there is definitely racism and they're stoking it. And, you know, they're not, they're not coming out with overt racist statements like they did in the seventies. But they're couching it in terms of you know, voter ID, uh, immigration, uh, you know, drain on on resources, uh, and those are the new code words that essentially mean the same thing. No, th- those those are really great points to bring up, and I think you're touching on this omission of history, uh, this overgeneralization, and just fact neglect of our community cultural capital. Let's close with this. So. What do you see as the way forward for Texas Latinos, for Mexican Americans here, and Latinos across the board in Texas as we proceed as we reassemble? I haven't checked. I think the Trump attempted coup is over, I think. So I haven't checked in the last (laughs) hour. So it may be finally clear to him that he lost the Electoral College. Uh, As we move on forward. Tony, let me just say it was never about the coup. It was about the feria. He, he he has fleeced 170 million from his loyal supporters. Interestingly, it's not the corporations that are giving him money. All my friends that were fundraisers, they quit giving him money after he lost the election. It's it's the hardworking, mm. you know, blue collar folks that believe his lies. They're still sending him money: fifty dollars, a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, and it's all about money. We've we've now realized he's not as rich as he says he says he is. He's not as successful as he says he is, and it's just about giving him some a little uh, money to you know to live on and and to pay off his half a billion dollars that he owes to different uh, entities around the world. And that's heartbreaking because, as you mentioned, those same folks are left on the hook and disappointed and lost. They they probably will be in this existential tailspin as as they proceed forward. Um, what do you see yourself doing as we move forward in Texas where, you know, you've got Arizona <laughs> a few miles away. Uh, you've got Trumpism brewing on another side. What happens to Texas in the next few years with this booming Latino population? But let's be real. Here in Houston, we may be the majority of the population. We only have one Latino city council member. Uh, we might or might not have a Latino mayor in 2023. Um, we're proud of the Latina Super 7 because as a result of the selection, you had seven Latinas gain posts as judgeships. But now we're 18% of those particular benches when we're a majority of the population. So it's like good news, bad news. What's next for Texas and Harris County? Well, I think we gotta we gotta look to our leaders like uh, the the Castro brothers, like Carol Alvarado, like uh, Armando Wally, uh, and and even you know leaders that haven't really come forward yet that aren't political yet, uh, like uh, Chief Acevedo. I mean, uh, I think he's someone that uh, you know could could be a. A real catalyst, of course, Lena Hidalgo, that you know has served us so well during the pandemic. So I think we do have some some people we can look to. Gilbert Garcia is an, you know another one that that uh, is out there and has shown leadership. Uh, you know, I think we have I think we have the leaders. You know, and we got to we got to keep fighting and you know make. I'm really encouraged by the by, by the big by the big tent. You know, Republicans were good about calling it a big tent and, and bringing in a lot of people. I think the Democrats can use the same model and bring in people. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the fiel activist, uh, Cesar Octavio, man, I think him and I agree on, I don't know what we disagree on. Maybe there's something, but, uh, but I never would have known mm-hmm. that without 
talking to him, uh, you know, when you talk to people, you realize you, you, you're going to have some common ground. But if you don't talk to people, if you just, you know, rely on memes and stuff on the Internet and slogans, well, then you're never going to realize that maybe you do have some common ground with them. That's a great motto for next year. This is Tuck Radio, so let's all keep talking. It's been a pleasure talking to Jacob Monte, a Republican who campaigned against Donald Trump, and it's been nice sorting through the the shrapnel of the elections and prognosticating a great era for Texas. Thank you. Thank you for always sticking up for Latinos, Tony. Uh, you're an inspiration to a lot of people. I appreciate that. Likewise, thank you for all you do. And hey, we're looking forward to to some great things in 2021. to Latino Politics and News. This is Tony Diaz. We are chatting with victorious incumbent Julio Maldonado, who was one of the Super 7 that won office in Harris County. She is a returning judge. Welcome back to the radio program and congratulations, Judge Maldonado, on your victory. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me this uh this evening and uh thank you for all the listeners out there uh it is uh my privilege to be here with y'all today so we of course want to toast your victory because as we quantified now um because the super seven latinas won there's about an 18 percent latina representation on these court benches that we Quantified. I want to point out that we weren't counting other seats, such as those appointed by the governor, or those appointed by the mayor, but this is really a big deal. You are unique, though, because you are not judge-elect. You are an incumbent judge. Is this victory as sweet as the first time you won? Does it still feel like you're starting all over each time? Uh, this victory, it's... Uh... I would say it was a little bit challenging, but I am very excited. Uh, it feels like I am starting all over again. I, I'm, I'm glad that it's behind me, but I'm thrilled to be back and, uh, and to continue on this particular bench and this particular family court bench. So and I, it's uh, go ahead. No, and I want to remind folks that. You are the judge of the Texas 507th District Court, which is what you're returning to. And what's very unique about you among the Super 7 is that you are an incumbent. So we want to talk about your future vision for what's coming next, but also your trajectory to get here. How many times have you run for office? Well, this would make it my Fifth time, I actually run for office four times at the time that I won this particular bench. So I started running for office, I want to say mid-2008 for the 2010 election. That was my very first election. And then I lost, and I lost the next three the next two times so i lost three times and on the fourth time it's when i won this particular bench which is the 507 family district court here in harris county now i ran i ran a fifth time now i won the re-election for that same bench that is some commitment and tenacity that's about 11 years of running. And what's very impressive, Judge Maldonado, is that you had the tenacity and ganas to run after that first election, which you did not win. Because one thing that I've seen is that 
obviously there's not enough, in my opinion, of our community members who do run. And when they lose that first time, most of them do not run again. What pushed you to run again after that first election? Didn't go the way you wanted. Oh, you're correct. It didn't go the way I wanted. Uh, But when I originally started running, I felt that our community was not properly represented here within Harris County. So I was very disappointed when I when I lost. But I thought, okay, with me losing, we're still not represented. So mm-hmm. I'm going to do it again. So it's time that I lost, and I felt that we didn't have uh, any any Hispanic or Latinas uh, on on the benches. I felt this need to do it. I felt responsibility towards our community uh, or representing our community. Um, And so I continue to do it again and again until I won. That's exciting. And of course, I want to go back to that first race, though, because right now we're happy and we're celebrating that we have 18% Latina representation on those particular benches that we mentioned. (laughs) But What was it like in 2010? If if there's 18% now, obviously there were fewer then. Oh, my God. Uh, I don't really think that that we had. Uh, we might have had one Latina on the bench. Um, wow. I don't. I, I think with the years, uh, as the years went by, we picked up a a second Latina, and then she was defeated. So we really didn't have much of, of his representation for our Latino, Latina community. Um, and, you know, I ran as a Democrat. I, I'm a Democrat, so I've always run as a Democrat. And so back then, it was not, you know, it was not as exciting as it is nowadays to run <laughs> as a Democrat. People would look at look down at you for running as a Democrat, but that was my party, and I was not going to be flipping back and forth just so that I could win. Wow, we have to revisit that. So, so let me get this straight. <laughs> <laughs> it was very different time then. So, you're saying even just saying that you're a Democrat, people were imagining as you were out of your mind for even running because uh, yeah, they're like, are you kidding me? Wow. <laughs> Because we've had one Latina that was appointed, uh, no names mentioned, uh, but she was a Republican, and she continued to get appointed. And back then, it was like you almost had to be a Republican to be in office. And and I, you know, at least in the family courts, they had been, I guess, for like 20 years, uh, they had never there hadn't been that many Democrats. I think we had one male uh, Hispanic <laughs> Democrat, but that was it. That was it. And so I I guess I felt a duty to my people, <laughs> that's what I say, uh, you know, to represent our community uh, as best way that I could. And I figured I'm going to do this, you know, as long as I can. And hopefully one day I will win so I can be there for my community. Wow. I mean, there's just so much to dig into there because, of course, (laughs) right now we are speaking in Harris County, which is deep blue, where it's the opposite Mm -hmm. now. If you're a Republican judge, people say, hey, you're you're uphill now. It's an uphill battle. Well, I I, one of the times that I ran, I ran for a court of appeals and that was really fun. It, it really, if you were a Democrat, you were, they were thinking about uh, But I actually won Harris County that during that election. I went to bed winning. Houston Chronicle said that I had won for the Court of Appeals, and in the morning I woke up and I had lost. Oh. So, uh, but that was quite an exciting race. I think that was probably the third time or the second time. I don't recall right now which time it was, but it was one of those times, and it was ten counties. So that was really, really exciting because I actually traveled all ten counties at that time on my wow. own. 
Wow. Now, so what did you learn during that first campaign that helped you for the second campaign? Because campaigns are hard, especially when you're running in an area that covers so much terrain. Um, I learned a lot because, you know, I was not, I didn't have, I don't come from a political background. I don't have a political background at all. My parents are farmers. My brothers, my sisters, they all are blue collar workers. So I don't have a political background. And so I learned, you know, the filing deadlines. I learned how to how to basically promote yourself. I had to learn the various uh, laws pertaining to uh, to running a campaign. Um, and then, with as the time goes by, you learn what is what is effective with campaigning. You know, where do you buy your signs? Who has the best price? People who you have to. Do who you shouldn't deal with. And, um, and you know, some people hire uh, uh, campaign managers. You know, I've never had the funds to hire that, but I always ran them on my own. So I definitely learned a whole lot. And you taught yourself? You had to pick this up yourself? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I pretty much did. You know, during my first election, there was two other people that we ran together. Um, I met them at the party. Okay, I didn't know them before, and one of them is Kathy Chang, who also ran this, this election in Seattle. And another is a gentleman who is now a turned Republican. But we learned together. We would go out to the parking lots together to obtain uh, signatures because you know we were too embarrassed to go on our own or by ourselves. And then eventually, we learned we could work on our own but during that first campaign we pretty much ran together we would uh, research about where do we need to go and who do we need to what what groups are out there so it was it was a great learning experience stuff that i didn't know then which i hope that someday i can help our latino community um you know, learn and guide because I would love to see uh, more Hispanics, Latinos, Latinas to run for office and to be well educated about what or where you need to start because that's something I didn't know. And along those same lines, let's mention again because I really appreciate you sharing that. How many times did you run before you won? I. I before I won, I ran three times. I won on the fourth time. And did you learn a little something each time? Oh yes, each time you learn, you you learn something new. You know, you learn. Uh, you learn. Uh, let's see. One of the things that I am great at now is verifying signatures. I had absolutely no idea how to do that. But I've learned that over the years. I've learned the requirements. I learned the things that you should have and shouldn't have, should not have in. And um, and I'm I'm very good at it now. But it it took years to learn because uh, people sometimes hire people to do that, and they end up you know getting dismissed from the ballots or all kind or they have all kinds of issues. So I always get it on my own so I have the opportunity to learn it um, but each time when you find a mistake then you learn the correct way so I would just try to learn as much as I could each time and that may be one of the issues for our community because you had the ganas to go out there on your own a lot of our community members don't and, and, or they may want to run but You've mentioned just a lot of the basic components that can get in the way. And like you mentioned, if you don't get some of those parts correct, you're disqualified. But not only that, probably early on, especially back in 2010, we may not have had as big a base of Latinas and Latinos. We may not have had as many 
law school graduates, we may not have had as many affinity groups. Additionally, I would also say that one thing that I'm hoping we can address in our community is that a veces nos da pena. You know, would you agree with that? And and how did if that is the case, how did you overcome eso? Yeah, yeah, it's nos da pena. I, uh, I I remember I, I you know when you had to go to like for instance either Democratic groups or even groups where there were both Democrats and Republicans and you get a little bit you know embarrassed or or you know you're cautious about going in there you don't want to go by yourself so uh, with time I overcame that you know and. Because I wanted to do this. So with time, I overcome being embarrassed, you know, about speaking uh, or even walking into a place. I couldn't even go to lunch to a single place by myself, and now I'll walk anywhere by myself. <laughs> you know? I'll talk to anybody. You get to meet a lot of people. There's a lot of good people and a lot of interesting people. You meet, you make a lot of connections and just, just great people overall, you know. Uh, so it's it's a it's a nice it's a really ex- great experience learning to learn yourself and enjoy it because what and I enjoy it. Yes. What I would add is, of course, I don't want to be too harsh with our community. I want to be honest, but at the same time, it's great that it was joyful. And sometimes I've been around people who are running for office and I didn't even know they ran for office. I'm like, okay, everyone in that room should have known you were running <laughs> and I'm next to you. I should know oh, you're yeah. running. So you bring up a good point where you've got to be able to go up to the people and let them know what's going on. And I, I'd love to see that for our community members across the board for many different purposes and fields, though. And you know what's so neat to see in our, in our community um like, I've met a, a lots and lots of people, and some of them, like this year, volunteer for me during the election, and they so thoroughly have enjoyed it because they were like, I didn't know just what it was, you mm. know. So one one great way to start getting or, or becoming uh, knowledgeable about the politics is it's great to volunteer, even if it's for an hour or two, you'll see how different it is. You'll get to meet a lot of people. And that sometimes gives our community incentive. Uh, one of the younger girls that helped me this time, she was, she was like 13. Her mom was there with her. And, you know, now she wants to volunteer in some other organizations that help our community. And I think it's wonderful. That is fantastic. Yeah. And, and maybe that should be the legacy of these campaigns and it's a great way to mentor like you mentioned and it is exciting now that we have the the super seven there are more opportunities to build this network of leaders and there are places now for like you say young folks to get experience volunteering to see it in person and they they learn so much just from seeing you go about and what it really means and then also, probably the family say, okay, we get it. This is what it's like, and this is important. So so that is exciting. Maybe that is part of this bright future. Is that what you'd like to continue as judge, giving young folks opportunities? I would love to. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity for everyone uh, in our community. Uh, I want to go back to um, this. When I talked about the 13-year-old, this was this election. I believe the prior election, <clears throat> I, had, I think it was either nine or ten, and him and his aunt would always go for me. And he, and he was so proud of being out there. You know, mm. he was so committed. He would he would ask his aunt to take him every day during the early voting and the, the <laughs> wow. election. And I and I think I have pictures of them. They're just absolutely beautiful photos of the of the children. You know that volunteer. <clears throat> and and I think this this with the with the super seven there is a great opportunity because I don't know if it has been explained but you know of the seven we have someone at the justice of the peace level okay so we're at different levels so we have ones for just about every level 
We have someone at the justices of peace level. We have someone at the county civil level. Okay, then we have two that are at the criminal district level. So we now have criminal. And then uh, myself, who is in the family level. Uh, and then we have two at the Court of Appeals. Okay, so we have at various levels of, of the hierarchy on the on the courts. So it's it's a great it's a great opportunity for our community to become uh, associated with at least those levels of of our court system. That that so is a great, a great you know. It's a great opportunity that we have right now. And I'm very proud of all of us. And I'll I'll be frank too. Until we started digging into it, I wasn't aware of all the different levels, the different nuances, how many were appointed, and I, I sort of had an idea of it. But the further we get into it, the clearer the picture becomes. It would be wonderful to have young people coming out of high school or starting college who already are aware of that and feel at home in that system and start to really make it part of their their worldview. Yes, it it really it really would be um because I'd never had that opportunity and I think it would be a great opportunity for our our young people to be able to have that. Um you know, I come my background is I had to show my mother this 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 levels of justice or the courts. Um, my mother was a farmer, so I used plastic cups to show her. You know, mm. I said, "Okay, mom, this is the JP, this is the civil, this is the district. This is what I'm trying to do, mom." Mm. And her her response was, "Mija, yo no sé qué es eso." But whatever you're planning to do is something big. So I think you need to continue. That's beautiful. So you know, it's it's something that will be with me forever. So, so I'm I'm very happy that 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 at least we as uh, Latinas or the seventh that that one that we that we can provide assistance or or what we can to our community. And I can, I can assure you, you definitely are inspiring a lot of folks, but it's also very wonderful to see the cariño you have for the community and for you to build those bridges between the community and the courts. Uh, in, in closing, as you get sworn in again for your uh, second term, um, what do you foresee with this next tenure of your judgeship? Well, I hope it doesn't go as fast as this one. You know, <laughs> this last four years, we're like, wait a minute. Um, so I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that I can, uh, you know, we we become more open to our community. And I don't know if the community knows that. Um, basically, right now, everything. If we're having a hearing in court, people are able to watch what we are doing. We have what's called live stream. So, if you want to know what a specific judge is doing, just look for live streaming for that specific judge and you're able to see if they're in the hearing. So, not only could you learn from, from what is happening, but you can also make sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing for you. It's representing our community and providing a good service, y'all. And so, I'm hoping that that expands in this next four years. And that our that our courtrooms are a little bit more open for everyone um, as we go past this COVID era. You know, which we're hoping it's over next year. I hope, um, and and maybe we could we could help in bringing uh, young people into our courtrooms. You know, for them to view uh, and see if this is something that they would be. Um, aspiring to do, and not necessarily the age is that, but I'm willing to talk about anything, including <laughs> as, uh, how you can go to school, you know, 
I, I am willing to mentor in just about anything that I can. That sounds beautiful. We'd happy we'd be happy to team up with you to make that happen. So thank you for thinking about it, and uh, we wish you continued success. It has been a pleasure chatting with victorious incumbent Judge Julia Maldonado of the Texas 507th District Court. We wish you continued success. Gracias. Thank you. Gracias. Gracias a todos. Si hay rumba, no quiero maná. Yo lo que vine fue a pasarla bien. ¿Cuál es el plan? Meetings of Pacifica Foundation Radio's Board of Directors and all of its standing committees, including KPFT's Local Station Board and Community Advisory Board, are open to the public. KPFT Board and Committee Meetings and Community Advisory Board Meetings are posted in the events calendar of KPFT's homepage at least one week in advance of the scheduled date and also announced on the air. In addition, all Pacifica Foundation radio meetings are posted at pacifica.org under calendar with links to audio streams carrying telephonic meetings and audio recordings of those meetings. If a meeting is closed to the public, a written explanation of the reason for closing will accompany the meeting's minutes available at pacifica.org under calendar. If you want to be notified of meetings personally, please submit your email address to meetings at kpft.org or call KPFT at 713-526-4000 during business hours. KPFT Houston. (laughs) 